Well, good evening. I'd ask that you please turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. And I'd ask that you please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 1, verses 7 to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth in him. Father, we pray that as we are presented with this text and your holy word, that it would speak to our hearts, that your spirit would shine upon us, give us ears to hear, eyes to see what you would have us to see and hear. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Yeah. Ephesians 1. Yeah. Verses 7 to 10. Well, this is our third sermon in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in the past couple weeks, Chris has taken us through Paul's introductory greeting to the church in Ephesus, as well as an exposition of the predestining grace of God the Father. And Paul can't contain his emotion in his opening words to his dear brothers and sisters at Ephesus. You can almost picture his pen scribbling furiously, smoking almost, as he inscribes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now just that sentence alone is enough to send a lightning bolt of joy through the heart of any Christian. But Paul's not done. That's only verse 3. He goes on to say that the Father has chosen us before the world's foundation, predestined for adoption as sons and daughters, all to the praise of God's glorious grace, which has been graciously bestowed on us. On us, unworthy and undeserving sinners. In little less than five verses, Paul declares that the Father, the first person of the Trinity, has firmly established the salvation of his people. A salvation which is grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps the phrase that Paul repeats the most in Ephesians 1 is, in Christ. If salvation is a building, Christ is the foundation. If salvation is a body, Christ is at the heart. Now in verse 7, in our passage tonight, Paul will switch gears from the Father to the Son, from the Sovereign to the Savior. Verses 3 through 6 describe the past actions of God the Father to plan our salvation. Verses 7 to 10 proclaim the work of Jesus Christ to secure our salvation. Last week, Chris described Ephesians 1 as a glorious mountain for the Christian to climb And verses 7 to 10 comprise the peak of that mountain. Paul will continue to celebrate God's glorious grace in Christ. He'll show that in Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we see the will of God clearly in the gospel. In Christ, all things will be made new. 
So beginning in verse 7, we read, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace. Now, there are many places in Scripture where you can find just one verse that fully encapsulates the whole gospel, and this is one of them. In this one verse, we see our problem and God's solution. And Paul can't help but celebrate because he's speaking to people who have experienced the solution. He says, in him we have redemption. Notice the present tense. We have redemption. We possess redemption. It's been given to us to keep. No takebacks. Now the word redemption in the ancient world referred to the freeing of slaves through the paying of a price. And Paul uses this imagery to describe the status of his hearers before redemption. They were enslaved to sin. Paul says that very thing in Romans 6, verse 17. You were slaves of sin. You presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness. This is our natural state as human beings. We willingly give in to impurity. We willingly give in to lawlessness. Offending the holy God who created us and must one day give us judgment for our disobedience and rebellion. That's our big problem. And we like it. Paul's focus is not on what we were, but what has been done for us. In him we have redemption, he says. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions. Whose blood? The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has paid the price for our redemption. By his blood shed on the cross of Calvary, we have been set free from our slavery to sin. And not only that, but the sins that condemn us before God have been forgiven. If you've seen that great film, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know the scene where he's uh, somehow gotten into the school computer and made his record to say, perfect attendance. Now, Christ has done something like that for us, though without being so sneaky and deceitful as Ferris Bueller. He's cleaned our record. We could never be good enough to merit the love of a holy God. We could never make the grade. But Jesus took our sins on himself, and God punished him for them. And at the same time, Christ gave us his perfect righteousness. A great exchange has been made. It was a public declaration of God's wrath towards sin and grace towards sinners. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves by giving us his report card, in a sense. How long do you think I can keep the school metaphors going? And Jesus' work is so interconnected with the Father's work. The Father predestines, the Father elects, the Son saves, the Son dies. Both play a pivotal role in our redemption. You can't have one without the other. And later in the chapter, in coming weeks, we'll see the Spirit's role as well. And Paul will end this verse by saying that this is all according to the riches of God's grace. It's not something we deserve or earn. Salvation is all according to the grace of God. And friends, his grace is super abundant. It is a well that never runs dry. Where sin increased, the scripture says, grace increased all the more. 
there is enough for you and more. Do you believe that tonight? Have you come to trust in Jesus and his blood shed for you? Have you tasted God's marvelous grace? If you have, then that's a cause for celebration. Just like Paul is celebrating here. He's exultant, exuberant. And if you haven't, then cry out to him for mercy. Turn from your sin to trust the Savior. There's plenty of grace for you as well. Now Paul's excitement about this grace continues in verses 8 and 9. And he switches, you'll notice, from the present tense to the past tense. In verse 7, he's reminded Christians that we currently possess redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Praise God for that. But why? Why do we possess this? How is it that we have it? And then he says, because of God's rich grace, which, verse 8, he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight. Paul is speaking to people who have already believed. They've already become Christians. And this grace that's abounded to them in all wisdom and insight affects their present reality, just like it uh, affects ours. Excuse me. Now, this verse could be taken a couple of ways. It could mean that God bestowed his superabundant grace upon us in his wisdom and insight, meaning he skillfully, insightfully discerned the right time to send the Savior. The wisdom and insight in this case would be God's own excellence in working out the counsels of his own divine will. Now, it could also be taken to mean that God's superabundant grace given to us results in us receiving all wisdom and all insight. Now, taken this way, this verse would mean that we've been granted the tools to see God's plan of salvation, wisdom to discern the true nature of our salvation, and insight into how to live it out. In this sense, the words wisdom and insight are revelatory words. We've been given new eyes to see. We've been given new ears to hear. This is not worldly wisdom, but heavenly wisdom. Wisdom from God. Now, you could take this verse either way. There are good arguments for both. But the most likely option is the second one because of what follows in verse 9. His grace which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, that word mystery merely means something that is hidden. The ocean depths are a mystery. The cosmos are in many ways a mystery. The mind of your spouse is perhaps one of the greatest of all mysteries. And if you're a fan of mystery stories, you'll know that no one parallels the great Sherlock Holmes in solving mysteries. And usually the stories play out the same way. Sherlock makes his observations. Dr. Watson faithfully tries to keep up. Until the very end, when the case is cracked, you know everything now. Sherlock brilliantly explains how he solved it. It was elementary all along, of course. And you, the reader, sort of smack your head and go, well, why didn't I think of that? It was right there in front of me the whole time. And yet at the same time, you feel a sense of satisfaction and wonder at seeing how all the pieces fit together to reveal the mystery, which is no longer mysterious. And here Paul is saying, look, the mystery of God's will has been revealed to you. And what's he referring to? Well, clearly it's not the eternal mind of God. Even after time and eternity, we won't have a a firm grasp of that. 
It's not a mystery that any one of us can solve by putting pen to paper. Sherlock and Watson won't be of any help to us here. Paul's also careful to say that it's not the same as the mystery cults, which the Ephesians would have been familiar with, cults to Artemis and other gods. Very esoteric, secretive knowledge only revealed to a select few. No, he's referring to the gospel. He's referring to the gospel of grace. The gospel which was kept veiled from Israel, and especially from the rest of the world, obscured by types and shadows, wondered at by prophets, hinted at here and there in the law. The question of how a person can be right with God was seemingly unanswerable. But the grace of Jesus Christ has opened our eyes to see the whole picture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are being abolished. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. There's that word mystery again. But it isn't so mysterious anymore because God has revealed it to us. It's what Paul's been so excited about this whole time, in this whole section. Man can be right with God, and here's how, finally, after all this time. God has elected. God has predestined us for holiness before him, for adoption into his family. You can be part of God's family. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, has shed his blood to secure our redemption. Our sins have been forgiven. The full riches of God's grace have been made to abound to poor sinners like you and like me. That's the mystery. But now we see it clearly. Just like a flower's bud opens to reveal colorful petals, so the will of God has opened to us in the beautiful gospel of grace. And... God was happy to reveal it to us. The mystery was revealed according to his good pleasure, which he, the Father, purposed in him, Christ. This is not a begrudging revelation. This is not a begrudging God, but a joyful God, a God pleased to redeem his people. If you remember from earlier in the chapter, the Father's predestining us for holiness and adoption was also according to his good pleasure. This good pleasure of the Father was purposed in Christ. There's that phrase again, in Christ. This means that the Father's good pleasure to reveal the mystery of his will was to be carried out in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Not in the animal sacrifices, not in the tabernacle, not the temple, not the Israelite monarchy, not the law, though these things prefigured Christ in their own ways. The salvation of sinners could only come by the shedding of Christ's blood. I want these words to be an encouragement to you today. God is pleased to save you. He's pleased when his people are filled with the wisdom and insight to discern his message of salvation. It blesses God to shower us with his abundant grace. Your salvation makes the heart of the Lord rejoice and all of heaven with him. Think on that in your dark moments. Now this verse, verse 9, ends halfway through a sentence, leading us to ask the question, 
What has God's good pleasure been purposed in Christ for? We already saw that God's grace has abounded to us according to God's good pleasure, but Paul has even more to say about it. In verse 10, Paul switches from what our present reality is to what the future holds. He spent time talking about what happened in the past with God's predestining. He's shown us our present reality as Christians. We possess redemption because of Christ. Christ, who died for the forgiveness of our sins. We've been given wisdom and insight into this redemption, which was kept hidden through the ages, but now revealed in Christ. Past, present, and now future. Verse 10 will begin with the phrase, or excuse me, verse 10 will end with the phrase, in him. The same phrase that we began with in verse 7, showing that these four verses form a clear unit. And it all goes to show that, as has already been mentioned, salvation from beginning to end is all of Christ Jesus. Now Paul will look ahead to the goal, what all history has been progressing towards, what God's good pleasure purposed in eternity past. Verse 10 reads, For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens or things on the earth, in him. That's the end game. Not only our salvation, but the redemption of the entire created order. The fall brought corruption to everything that God had made, and things need to be set right. Paul begins verse 10 with the words, for an administration of the fullness of times. So let's break that down. The word administration is the same word used elsewhere in the New Testament for stewardship or management over a household. It's a term that denotes oversight. We use the word administration in much the same way today. We call the president's office the Biden administration, or whoever's in office. He has oversight over the country. Or we might refer to the administration of a business, the CEO, the executives, the leadership branch. In Ephesians 1, Paul is saying that God's good pleasure has been purposed in Christ for this administration, this stewardship, this management over God's household creation. It's God's will that Christ should have an, ins- an oversight of some kind. But of what kind? He says it right there. Of the fullness of the times. Well, what does that mean? Paul's kind of throwing a lot at us. Well, the fullness of the times could mean right now. Some people to take it to mean it's happening right now. We're in the fullness of the times because Christ is seated at God's right hand. Christ reigns over all things. He's administrating right now. Now, there's some truth to this because Christ is indeed seated at God's right hand. He maintains providential control over all things at all times, including Satan and the sinful actions of wicked people. So in that sense, Christ is exercising oversight. And especially, he's, ex- he's exercising that oversight over his body, the church. We're living under Christ's lordship. He's broken our bonds of slavery to sin and become our new master. We submit to him in everything now. He's our head, and in him, we have power over sin and over evil. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is saying that it refers to the future. The word fullness means completeness. It means reaching a goal. In this case, 
the goal is summed up in the next phrase. The summing up or uniting of all things in Christ. There's that phrase again. Now, it's clear that this hasn't happened yet. Even if the church is under Christ, the rest of the world certainly isn't. Satan and sinful men may have a long leash, but they haven't been subdued. They haven't been put under Christ's feet yet. They're still allowed to commit wicked deeds. When Paul says all things here, he really does mean all. So it's clear from context that Paul is referring to a future time. It was God's good pleasure to plan for Christ to rule over all things in the last days. There will be a day when all evil will be fully subdued and everything will be put right. That term that's summing up that Paul uses in ancient literature meant summary, as when summarizing an argument during a speech. Paul uses the same word in Romans 13 when he says that the whole law is summed up in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. So we get the idea of parts being brought into a coherent whole. You can imagine a puzzle almost, a bunch of disjointed pieces being brought together to make one thing. Now we get that phrase again, in Christ. At the head of this administration that God has purposed is the divine Son of God himself. The King. God's King. This Jesus whom, as Paul says in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. When Paul uses that phrase in Ephesians, and then here again in Philippians, things in the heavens, things on the earth, he's encompassing the entirety of the created order. Whether it be natural things or spiritual things, everything will be brought into the kingdom of God under the lordship of Jesus. Even Satan and his demonic powers will be brought to submission. Even they will confess, but it will be to their judgment. And this concept of the redemption of creation isn't really focused on a lot by modern-day Christians, unfortunately, but it's taught in Scripture and throughout church history. Romans 8, Paul says clearly that the creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation is subjected to the same slavery we are. It's also been tainted by sin. The Apostle John devotes a couple of chapters in Revelation to the new heavens and the new earth, this period when God will make all things new. Christianity, in a lot of ways, has become so individualized that we forget that salvation doesn't stop with us. All things must be brought under Christ's headship. This is God's way of reversing the fall, bringing about a new creation free from the taint of sin. It's fascinating to watch videos of people restoring old works of art. They bring in a work of art, it's a painting or something, the color's faded, the frame is broken and rotted, the paint is cracked, it's dirty. You can tell that what used to be there was very beautiful. But now, if you looked at it, you'd probably think it should go into the garbage heap. Then this art restorer comes in and he begins to work on it. Painstakingly, he cuts a new frame, 
cleans off the dirt, cleans off the grime. He retraces the old lines. He adds new color, gives it a new fresh coat of paint. And all of a sudden, there's a brand new painting. He takes what was there and he gives it new life. There's a whole new work of art right in front of you. And you wouldn't guess it, given what you just saw a few minutes ago. The old painting has been remade. That's what Paul is describing here in verse 10. This is what God has been working towards since the beginning. Right now, we're living in that old, rotted, dirty, trash-worthy painting. But God is restoring it in Christ Jesus. Look forward to that day, believer. Look forward to the day when sin and death will be no more. The enemy and his lies will be done away with. All things will be made new. And Christ, and Christ alone, will be at the head of it all. <clears throat> this section of scripture is a, is a beautiful one, to be sure, but we're in danger of missing it if we read Ephesians 1 like a seminary paper. Yes, we need to analyze words. We need to analyze structure. We need to look at the theology there. But Paul's not writing his dissertation here. He's worshiping the God of his salvation. He's inviting his readers, that's you and me, to join with him in that worship. What should our response be to the marvelous grace that's been given to us? How now shall we live now that the mystery of God's will has been revealed to us in Christ? What should our attitudes be? Knowing that one day the heavens and the earth will be brought under Christ's rule. Paul's attitude is as good as an example as any. His joyful example in Ephesians 1. Are you thankful for the grace of God? Do you wake up each morning with a fresh thankfulness that Jesus Christ has shed his blood for you and brought you out of your slavery to sin? Rejoice every day with Paul. Thank our God for his glorious grace. Your sins are forgiven. Enough said, I think. Christ has accomplished what the Father purposed in him. Do you praise him for the revelation of his will? The gospel, the best news the world has ever heard, has been revealed to you, to you, to me, to the whole world. God didn't give it to some hermit in a mountain. He gave it to us. He was pleased to reveal it in the work of his son for all to see. The mystery is no longer mysterious. The son of God has shed his blood for sinners like you and me. You can know that today. He calls on you to believe that today. Do you hope in him for the day when all will be made new? Christians, we can never be fully comfortable in this world because we know that we have a better home. It's like living in a, a shack knowing that you're going to be in a mansion in a week. It's not that bad. We have hope. As good as creation is, it's been deeply corrupted by sin. And we see the effects of that. We just saw a natural disaster a couple weeks ago that killed a bunch of people. Disease. Corruption all over the place. Our own sin and our own hearts, our own flesh. 
But we await the day when God will make everything right. And he will. We can be assured that he will. Because he told us that he will. Christ will reign over all things unchallenged. No longer will disease ravage our bodies and rip away loved ones. No longer will temptation or the strategies of Satan harry us at every turn. Our flesh will be destroyed. Death will be no more. Sounds pretty good to me. But more than that, we'll be fully united to our Lord. Do you look forward to that day? May our God instill in each one of us a deep thankfulness for his grace, a worshipful heart for the gospel that has been revealed to us, and a hopeful disposition for that day when all things will be made new. Let's pray. Father, you've shown us in your word the work that you have done to secure the salvation of sinners like us. And you've shown us that it is in Christ. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. In Christ, the mystery of salvation, how can we be right with God, has been revealed. And not just to a few select people, but to everyone, for all to hear, that anyone who believes may come to you. And in Christ, all things will be made new one day. We praise you for these things, that we have heard them today. And we pray that anyone who listening now who has not believed will believe. And that we who do believe will have our hearts lifted and encouraged because of the hope we have in Christ. For it's, his, it's in his name we pray. Amen.